Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features acclaimed trauma surgeon, Dr. Ronald Stewart, the Dr. Witten B. Russ Chair of Surgery at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. Dr. Stewart delivered the Scudder Oration on Trauma during Clinical Congress 2022, reflecting on the ACS Committee on Trauma's Century of Commitment to Optimal Trauma Care, Lessons Learned, and Opportunities for the Future. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. Thank you, Dr. Kirby, for that kind introduction. Before I start, uh, I know this is a bit non-traditional, but it should come as no shock. Uh, Could we give the current and past members of the Committee on Trauma and the Committee on on Trauma itself for a 100-year celebration, round of applause for those current members and past members of the Committee on Trauma. It is a true, true honor and privilege to be here today with you, today, in this place, in this city, in person. San Diego is a very special place to me for a number of reasons. It is one of the places, the, the development of an inclusive trauma system, the people who've come through here And so it is a true honor and privilege, and I am tremendously grateful to be here. I'm going to do my very best to honor and understand the past with a focus on the future. The Committee on Trauma lost three key members this past year, uh, Bill Marks, Tommy Thompson, and Katie Strong. Uh, I show these photos uh, not to make it sad, although it does make me sad, knowing the people that we've lost. But today, I want us to remember, honor, and celebrate their work. And to me, the best way we can do that is to commit to continue to advance their hopes and their dreams for a better future for the injured patient. So celebrate what they've done. Uh, I'm going to talk from a personal perspective as as a surgeon patient, photographer, yes, there will be pictures of blue bonnets, Uh, and as a person. uh, I'm going to try to highlight the revolutionary journey from uh, the past hundred years. I'll do my best to make clear the magnitude of the current health problem, the the current cost of injury, and I'm going to tell this strange and twisting journey of the Committee on Trauma and the Southwest Texas Regional Advisory Council trying to follow the path to uh, an inclusive trauma system and uh, really talk about that as a way of thinking in complex problem solving. Uh, I really believe that our people are our most precious treasure and I'll try to emphasize that throughout this talk. And I'm gonna end with a call for our leadership and advocacy. I'm a simple person. This is my view of a trauma system. I think it rests on three pillars, prevention, acute care, rehabilitation, 
in their framework for disaster and other injury, stroke, STEMI, mental health crisis, and the pandemic. And it requires cooperation and communication. It requires that. It doesn't work without it. We had a call from Brent Eastman in 2009 to implement a trauma system in every part of the United States, and the Committee on Traumas extended that to the globe. So I'm going to talk about trying to follow that path uh, and where it leads to some unexpected things. December 21st, 2011, I was, I know it would come as no shock, I was doing some last minute Christmas shopping. Uh, whenever I suddenly felt myself losing consciousness, it's like my world didn't gray out, it golded out, my visual fields contracted and I lost consciousness. And whenever I regained consciousness, uh, I realized I had a right hemiparesis and expressive aphasia. Uh, and I realized that I'd had a stroke or it had a seizure, but I had a stroke. Uh, and I tell you that too, not, not to make you feel sad in any way or to feel you know, sorry or pity for me. Uh, because to me, in real ways, it was one of the, not the most positive, I will say, but one of the most positive experiences of my life. Because I learned important lessons. And if you want to know the number one thing I learned, I learned a tremendous feeling of gratitude to the people who helped me whenever I really needed their help. I've never been able to adequately express the gratitude that I still feel to this day. And I want you to know that your patience, our patience, feel gratitude to, even if they can't express it. I want you to know how grateful I feel to you and to everything you do. I know there's some really good baseball games going on, but in reality, whoever wins or loses those games, it doesn't really matter. It really doesn't matter. The things you do, the things your teams do, touch people's lives in meaningfully, vitally important ways. So my first lesson was gratitude. And it may seem strange to say, but the tremendous amount of joy I felt simply to be able to speak to my family. I cannot express how happy I felt and the value of people in my life. And probably one of the most important lessons I learned was time. We do not have unlimited time. We do not have unlimited time. Whatever we need to do, we aspire to do, we need to start it and do it now. Not tomorrow, not next month, not at the next meeting. Now is the time. This is my care team, my family, the people who supported me. I want to thank you so much. How much I really, truly appreciate you. I want to thank my family. These are my children down there when they were 20 years ago. But I want to thank you, Sherry 
for supporting me when sometimes I didn't deserve it, for teaching me, for being there for me and believing in me when maybe I didn't believe in myself. Elizabeth, Jackson, and Miriam, super proud of you all and very grateful for you for keeping me honest and maybe a little younger than what I might uh, be left to my own natural tendencies of grumpiness. But I want to thank you. I want to thank these three people, Dr. Eileen Bulger, Dr. Jeff Kirby, and Jean Clemency, for uh, all their work on the Centennial book, the Centennial going through the archives. This talk has greatly benefited from the tremendous amount of work that you did uh, for this. And I'm really grateful for your friendship, for your leadership, and for all you do to make this world a better place. I want to thank all of my mentors. I've been very blessed to have amazing mentors. And if you haven't noticed, I like these collages, and I try to be maximum inclusive, as Dr. Kirby said, but uh, it has to be a representative sample. So if you're not on here, I really appreciate you too. But uh, I'm really, really grateful. I'm really, really grateful. Thank you. I come from a branch of the Wangenstein Tribe of Surgery, which, by the way, our residents lost, resident jeopardy, the championship, because they didn't know Owen Wangenstein was the chair, was the, the forum was named after Owen Wangenstein. But we came from, from the University of Minnesota. Eight Minnesotans from the university came 50 to 60 years ago, and they stayed their entire lives. And anything that I've done is simply a reflection of uh, their approach. I want to thank the people who do all the work, whether I'm at home or whether I'm here. Uh, the amazing, amazing team of trauma and acute care surgeons and the entire Department of Surgery, including our residents. You know, residents play vital roles in, vital roles in level one trauma centers, level two trauma centers, and uh, make a real difference in patient care. Thank you so much. And I want to thank all the members of the Committee on Trauma the amazing staff of the Committee on Trauma, every, every single person who toils to make this world better. I'm really, really grateful for you. For the past Scudder orators, thank you. These are the Scudders during my tenure in the leadership of the Committee on Trauma. Thank you uh, for your contribution. For the international partners who, who are really revolutionizing care across the globe, super grateful for that partnership and for the entire House of Medicine who's come together to address a constructive path forward for fire injury prevention to make that a reality, really, really grateful. And lastly, I want to thank uh, the Southwest Texas Regional Advisory Council uh, team for all the amazing work they do to make uh, South Texas a safer and better place. Thank you, Eric Epley, for your leadership and partnership over the time period. So, you know, I think in some ways, it seems like in some ways we're at a crossroads. I took this picture on the way to Dr. Pruitt's Festschrift. And I think it's, it seems like a legitimate question of can we address complex problems? Can we, can we actually address or manage or solve a complex problem well? 
Well, I know we can. I know we can. And the story I'm going to tell shows that we can do it. And it shows a path of how to do it. But it does mean that we have to use both halves of our brain. We can't use one half of our brain for four years and another for four years. Trust me, I know what it means to not have a half of your brain working. And uh, it's a problem. We have to address complex problems together. And the corpus callosum has a function. The corpus callosum has a function. And some of you are bridges. And we need to build bridges. We have to do it together. There's no other way. Being human. I used to have an overly simplistic view of good and bad, but I've realized that as human beings, this, this especially includes me, we are all capable, we are all, each and every one, capable of great good, great harm, or great indifference. And while I may like to think of myself of all those good attributes, I realize that if I really think of myself in that way so strongly, it is very easy to make monsters, to make monsters of people. And these monsters are of our own creation. So if they're of our own creation, we can stop. We can stop making monsters of others. This is commonly done for some of the worst situation school shooters characterized as monsters. They're children of our own creation. In the way, the way forward, the way to me to be good and lessons learned that I've learned through the Committee on Trauma is to make conscious choices. And so I'm gonna emphasize conscious leadership of the Committee on Trauma. And by the way, when I refer to the Committee on Trauma, I'm talking about the entire trauma and acute care surgery community. It's the same, you know, in any generation, it's the same 500 people who are doing all this. Conscious choice. And to me, the purpose of an education is to provide, one, the knowledge, skills, and tools to speak to a larger and larger audience, not a smaller and smaller group of like-minded elite experts. Uh, I'm a generalist. I'm a generalist. To me, that is the purpose of an education. So how do we view the world today? How do we see the world? Well, I'm going to say the world is not as good as it could be, for sure. It's not as good as it should be, but it is significantly better now than it has ever been in almost every human health measure. Every measure of human health, it is it is almost better. Not everyone, but most, it's better. I can't say the same for the planet right now, but this, it's true for us humans. So I'm going to tell the story of a century of commitment to improving trauma care, and I'm going to talk about what I think is a key principle. Cooperation and communication save lives. It, they do. Cooperation and communication are key values. So what were things like in 1922, 1913? Well, at that time, 
about 70 to 75 percent of the world lived in extreme poverty, $2 a day in today's dollars. Now it's down to about 10 percent. Life expectancy, when my grandmother was, a, was born, was the same as what it had been throughout recorded human history, between 30 and 40 years. So I'm going to tell the story of the past with an eye to the future, and I'm going to start in 1908. I'm going to stop short of the work on the Committee on Trauma about 1990, so I'm not going to say the miraculous things that have been done since that time. That was covered by Dr. Meredith, and these are some pictures of Dr. Meredith. I show this thinking I might be a stalker, you know, looking at all these pictures. But, uh, but uh, uh, I'll start with my grandmother. This is my grandmother and our youngest daughter, Mary, with her about 20 years ago. My, my grandmother was born in 1908. I would not be here if it wasn't for my grandmother. In 1912, the American Surgical formed a work group on fractures, which ultimately moved this to, to the Committee on Fractures in the American College of Surgeons. But what was life like in 1913? Well, the ACS was formed. Women did not have the right to vote. Ford opened a moving assembly line. Richard Nixon, Rosa Parks, Jimmy Hoffa, Vincent Barty were born. So it was a long time ago, but not that long ago. Not that long ago. So what was trauma care like? Well, the ACS was founded, but there was really no pre-hospital care, no hospital standards. All the care pretty much was provided by marginally trained people. The two big killers, shock and brain injury, were poorly understood. And what was it like to be a trauma patient in 1913? These are estimates of mortality. The data is not great. But if, if, if I had an open femur fracture in 1913, I had a 70% risk of dying. If I had a 30% second and third degree total body surface area burn, I had a 50% risk of death. And for every one of the deaths, there were horrible disabilities from untreated conditions. It was awful. I'm going to show this is from a great partner organization, the National Safety Council. I'm going to show uh, motor vehicle crash death rate adjusted for vehicles, miles driven, uh, and total number of deaths. I'm going to show this slide a couple of times. But we were, the short version is of this. In 1913, we were 25 times more likely to die from a motor vehicle crash than we are today. So fast forward to 1922. The Committee on Fractures was formed under the very able leadership of Charles Scudder. Uh, the, the culture that exists in the Committee on Trauma was, was set from the very beginning. The philosophy was from the very beginning. Women had gained the right to vote in 1920. Uh, and you can see the people who were born, people whose n names you know. Jim Crow laws were the norm across the US. That was 20, that was, that was 1922. There had been a lot of innovations in World War I, a lot of innovations. Shock was starting to be understood. Uh, but really, the key thing is for civilians, little had changed since 1913. But we were a little safer. We were only nine times more likely to die from a motor vehicle crash than today. Fast forward to 1950. The Board of Regents approved the name change to the Committee on Trauma, it, and the Committee on Trauma took on other injuries beside fractures. Uh, that same year, my mom, who was 17 years old, I wasn't born yet, was in this car crash. 
in this car crash. She had a femur fracture, and she was in a hip spica cast, which she called a total body cast, for six months, for six months. For six months, she was totally dependent upon her family and friends to care for her. That was the state of care in 1950 in a small town. And the, the tragedy of the 1950s in many ways is that most of the technological advances were in place to dramatically improve care. But still there was no trauma system. But the ACS COT was advocating for automobile safety, EMS, pre-hospital care, hospital care, which would become trauma centers. But still much of the care was, was provided by people right out of medical school. What about injury prevention? This is a fun quote here. Uh, well, in 1955, the ACS wrote, uh, the, partnered with the big three to make, to, to make automobiles safer. And uh, the executive director had written to uh, uh, GM, and this is the chief safety engineer, <laughs> chief safety engineer writing back to the ACS, okay? The, the person in charge of safety. And I'm gonna just paraphrase, you know, look, doctor, we're just not that good. We can't overcome physics. Uh, and you helping to come up with this idea that people involved in accidents caused by their own negligence and unsafe driving, I mean, I think you're just doing a great disservice to the motoring public. <laughs> and he put it in a letter. I mean, come on. 1960s saw a lot of advancement. Uh, this is a key, key paper, 1966. The, the Academy's Accidental Death and Disability, The Neglected Disease of Modern Society, foreshadowing things later in the talk. I'm gonna say it only had accidental death in there, didn't have intentional, but accidental death. This really articulated a path to modern trauma care. EMS, emergency medicine, trauma surgery, trauma centers, disaster research funding, and the public hospitals were starting to serve important roles as trauma centers. It's written by three fellows from the ACS. EMS came to be, Vietnam War was in full uh, bore, uh, and the advanced lessons were being learned, and we started to see diseases of survivorship. You have to survive injury to get ARDS. You have to survive to get acute renal failure. Uh, and citizen surgeons were, or civilian surgeons were starting to apply these rules. 1976 to 1990, I think of as a very innovative time. It was very innovative, and two big things came to be. One was the research for optimal care of the injured patient, which, which really standardized and dramatically improved the care of patients. Uh, and Fraser Gerd at that time, who had been with the Committee on Trauma since I think its beginning, said, you know, we for too long have said minimal standards. Optimal is a great advance forward and it has revolutionized care. And there was a stroke of genius. If you were in this room and you were involved in this, you should give yourself a tremendous pat on the back and a big hug. Setting these four principles, set standards that, that improve the quality of care, and those standards ensure the right leadership, infrastructure, processes, and resources, use clinical data for performance improvement, and verify. It was in the trust but verify age, and it's all these principles really are a stroke of genius. These were pioneered and developed by the COT, and it's, been, it's transformed trauma care, and it's transformed surgical care. 
1976 was also the, the horrible tragedy of Dr. Jim Steiner's uh, uh, plane crash. His wife was killed in this plane crash. But it led to ATLS, which standardized trauma resuscitation and has done that now across the globe. More than a million people have been trained, and, and it's led to a whole host of other educational programs. We started to see prevention become a science. The amazing Susan Baker and Bill Haddon basically really quantifying and measuring injury and setting the science for preventing injury. The COT Injury Prevention Committee came to be with uh, Dr. Carrico, Dr. Mayer, and Dr. Knudsen. Dr. Mayer described the group as unruly hotheads and troublemakers. Uh, and I remember whenever I started, you know, being involved in the Committee on Trauma at the national level, I really, I really was drawn to that. And I wanted to be like Peggy. I mean, that's basically what I wanted to do. And, uh, and that group has made a real difference. So the past hundred years have had seen dramatic improvements. The world, from our perspective, is way better than it was a hundred years ago. So for the young people, for the students, for the residents, for the members currently in the Committee on Trauma. I want you to know, and I want you to proceed with full confidence that you can and you will transform the world. You can and you will. And I'm going to talk about the path. I'm going to start with an integrated definition of trauma. This is a great definition. I, I, uh, it goes something like this, the trauma is a physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening event that has lasting adverse effects on the person's functioning and well-being. It's an integrated version. Physical trauma and psychological trauma, emotional trauma are simply, they're both injuries, they're different faces of the same problem. It's an integrated definition. So what's the scale globally? About six million people die every year from injury. That's, that's more than nine people every minute. Injury accounts for more deaths than HIV, HIV, TB, and malaria combined worldwide. And if you look at the scope of uh, children, young people, middle-aged people, it's far and away the leading cause of death. So how are we doing over the past 20 years? Well, we have opportunities for improvement. Uh, the first 10 years saw some improvement, steady, some improvement, and we've had an increase in U.S. trauma age-adjusted death rate over the past decade. Uh, well, let's look at why. Falls significantly increased. Firearm-related uh, deaths significantly incre increased. Motor vehicle deaths decreased. Hmm. It should come as no shock that falls and firearm-related, firearm injury prevention, firearm-related research are the two most poorly funded, most poorly funded problems in the entire federal funding infrastructure. It should come as no surprise that, that, that we've not seen improvement and that we've actually gone backwards. And we will have to make that change. Okay. Uh, looking at that data, you would say, okay, unintentional has been about the same. Uh, falls really impact this. Motor vehicle crashes improve. You can see suicide and homicide, so self-harm and, and assault-related uh, death. 
both increased over time. So intentional injury has increased during this time period. What about children and adolescents? Well, there's a difference. Falls make up a very small fraction of uh, children and adolescent deaths. Look at the miraculous improvement, though, in motor vehicle crash death rates. Amazing, amazing work, by the way, for the people in this, in this room. But look at fire-related deaths. So dramatic improvements in children's unintentional death rates, increases in suicide and homicide. 2020 was the year that fire injury became the number one cause of death in U.S. children and adolescents. Not the number one injury cause, the number one cause of injury, uh, the number one cause of death of U.S. children and adolescents is related to firearm-related death. During this time period, we saw, you know, the amazing Dr. Barlow and her whole team who basically pioneered, you know, in real ways, community-based, community engagement, working with the community to do what uh, is relevant and to, to, to basically build coalitions and implement a plan. ATLS benefited from the ABCDE approach, but you know, a special shout out to Dr. Barlow and her uh, prevention team from Harlem Hospital, amazing. Uh, what about the cost of injury? Uh, I'm gonna talk about visible costs, the obvious direct and indirect costs, but there's the whole set of hidden costs. I missed this paper, okay, but, but uh, in 2019, just pre-pandemic, the, there's a paper published in MMWR that estimates the cost of injury at 4.2 trillion. That's 2 trillion in fatal injuries, 2 trillion in non-fatal injuries. So that's a lot. Uh, does, does it include the cost of the criminal justice system? No. Does it include civil justice system? No. Property loss? No. Does it include secondary and tertiary costs of childhood trauma? No, it does not. It sure doesn't. The, the burden of disease is much greater than the deaths alone. That much is clear. That physical trauma often leads to psychological trauma, and psychological trauma predisposes to physical trauma and many lifelong health problems. Vincent uh, Folletti, Robert Onda, Allison Spitz, and Valerie Edwards wrote a key paper in 1994 that looked at adverse childhood experiences and the impact on chronic disease, chronic disease later in life. There's, there's significant impact on adverse childhood experiences that have long-lasting impact for mental health, maternal health, infectious disease, all the chronic diseases pretty much. What's the cost of adverse childhood experiences? This is also a paper from 2019. Well, the cost estimates for, for ACEs in uh, the, the resultant cost in chronic disease in, in US and Canada is $748 billion. So what about criminal justice? Well, obviously, the criminal justice system is not going to go away if we did a dramatically great job at preventing injuries. However, let's just say it was a 5% difference. That's $14.8 billion. So this summarizes all that. Above the level, if you look at the iceberg, there's the direct costs and work loss, 327 billion, 69 billion. But below the waterline, where it's hard to see, there's 3.8 trillion in value of a statistical life loss, the value of the life loss, 673 billion, that excludes Canada from this, 673 billion in adverse childhood experience, chronic disease costs, and 15 billion in criminal justice. 
That's a four to five trillion problem. That's 15 to 20 percent of GDP. Now, we could probably afterwards, and I'm happy to talk about this afterwards, we could debate about this. I think this is actually solid data, but the cost is tremendous. So that's adverse childhood experience. What about positive childhood experiences? Positive childhood experiences. Well, positive childhood experiences are in some ways an antidote to adverse childhood experiences and lead to, uh, uh, lead to uh, better child health. And I'm going to look at three studies, three good quality studies. One, a randomized trial, the High Scope Perry Project. If you look at the positive childhood experiences of early childhood education and you follow that cohort through adulthood, improved academic performance, graduation rates, college attendance, employment, earnings, the return on investment is three to seven-fold for every dollar invested. And, you know, preliminary data, but really fascinating, the children of the children in that cohort have improved outcomes. The children of the children have improved outcomes. Positive childhood experiences matter. So what are opportunities for the future? Well, I'm going to tell the story, it's a fascinating story, of the, the trauma system and a way of progressing through looking for an inclusive trauma system. The bottom line up front, this is a pre-hospital bottom line up front, Optimal function requires maximal inclusion. Optimal function requires maximal inclusion. Philosophy matters and it endures, though. And so the philosophy that we use, that the Committee on Trauma taught me, that we use, is a professional model. We dedicate ourselves to, uh, to, to the service of humanity and we place the needs of the patient above those of the physician, nurse, paramedic. And we'll do the best we can to use scientific truth to determine it. Don Trunke, a fierce advocate in the Committee on Trauma for these things, said this system is designated for the benefit of the patient, not for the hospital and not for the surgeon. Thea James from Boston University Medical Center, philosophy, moving from charity to equity. It's a very simple approach that if we commit to caring for all children as our own children, we can make amazing progress words of wisdom. So, as many on the Committee on Trauma know, you've had to see these seven Ps every time you come on the committee, but I think philosophy and action, seven Ps to be. I learned these lessons through the Committee on Trauma, and I really like them because it doesn't require me or anyone else to be a Marvel superhero. Be participatory, be friendly and collaborative. My grandmother said, if you want to have friends, make yourself friendly. Be friendly and collaborative and participate. The most important P I've already talked about is be professional, be true to what we profess. We profess the patient's, the patient's interests come first, be true to that profession. Be a problem solver. Promote a culture of yes, yes we can. Si se puede, yes we can. You say no, I say go. That is a COT, uh, that is a COT aphorism. Be a performance improvement leader. And the last three are simply implementation tools. Be passionate about the care you're providing. Be passionate about preventing injuries, but be patient and be perseverant. The people who were the greatest working at the middle P, which I learned from the Committee on Trauma, were P 
people who really have learned to become their own best constructive self-coach. This is what they do. They do their best and look back and say they can do it a little bit better, a little bit better. They're actively looking for opportunities for improvement. They're, they're constructive, not destructive. They take a constructive approach. They forgive, learn, and improve. I used to say forgive and remember. I think this is actually more accurate. Forgive, learn, improve. Trauma system principles. I think if we send a team anywhere in the world to build a trauma system that didn't exist, if we adhere to these four principles, we will have success. Be maximally inclusive with all stakeholders. Once we're being inclusive, then foster a discussion on what's the right thing to do for the patient. Then commit to a consensus-based approach. We're going to make decisions that we can live with. We don't have to vote. Make cooperation communication values, use actionable data, and have a bias for action, a bias for action. This takes talk, it takes a lot of talk, it takes tolerance, and it takes time. It is very doable. I mean, it definitely works every day in the Committee on Trauma. It is doable. So I'm going to talk about the Southwest Texas Regional Advisory Council of following a path to getting the right patient to the right place in the right time or the right information to the right person in the right time so the patient get the right care. Uh, you know, I know those of you from Europe, you think Texas bad, Austin good. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not from Austin, but this, I'm in this corner of Texas. Uh, and it's one of the most diverse, heterogeneous uh, regions in the, in the state. Uh, it's 27,000 square miles. And I'm just going to say where we started in 1993, we established a not-for-profit corporation to manage a TSA, a trauma service area. We did some simple things, established triage bypass protocols. We integrated military trauma centers into a civilian trauma system. We then developed a robust communication system that, that coordinates all that care. Then we did a regional registry. We developed a regional medical operations centers. We did stroke, cardiac, pediatric, perinatal care systems, regional whole blood, and then a mental health crisis intervention system, all based on the principle, in a pandemic response, all based on the principles of a trauma system. And these are just some of the Strax regional programs, uh, just so that you see those for a second. But I'm going to tell the story of a couple of them, the RMOC and the mental health crisis intervention. And the Strax has never had a non-unanimous vote in 25 years, has never had a non-unanimous vote. Disaster response. RMOCs really make a difference, the Regional Medical Operations Center. This is the late Dr. Freiburg when he was the chair of the COT's uh, injury, uh, the disaster committee. Communications are the most likely pitfall. So in the pandemic, these three systems had to work seamlessly together. The acute health care system, public health and emergency management. Uh, for that to work, they have to coordinate and work with each other, and really there's no system in place to make that work. So an RMOC does that. This is an RMOC pre-pandemic working. Every major health system, every major EMS in the same room looking at each other, actively engaged with the EOC. That leads to situational awareness, dramatically improved disaster preparedness, response and management, and it makes, it makes working together, cooperation, communication, real values, even among competitors uh, working together. So the mental health crisis system, I never, ever would have predicted this would happen. 
okay? But pre-2017, in our, in our city, if you were in mental health crisis, you were likely going to two places, jail or an emergency department somewhere. But two people kind of on the back of a napkin, Eric Epley and Dave Miramontis basically said, you know, let's get the right patient to the right place in the right time for the right care. So they said, well, we can go to psychiatric uh, facilities, a mental health treatment facility. And then once that started happening, they said, well, we need transitional housing and step-down units. That started happening. And then they said, well, we need better outpatient behavioral health services. So that started happening. And then the patient goes home and they get in crisis again. They said, well, you know, what we need for that is we need a multidisciplinary response team with mental health professionals on that team so the patient can get back to better function. I mean, amazing if you think about it. And this is the budget for this track for this time. $5 million here. The last budget is $24 million. It's the, it's the single greatest budget in our trauma system is mental health crisis intervention. Moving towards the end, your leadership, our leadership is critical, critical. Why do some regions in the U.S. have a robust trauma system and others have none, from Dr. Hoyt? The difference is the presence or absence of committed advocates. Special shout out to Region 14 in the COT, in particular, Dr. Uh, Maria Jimenez. And, uh, and this, this team of people, Dr. Robert Winchell, uh, the two of you are inspiration to me. Uh, basically, we must do international trauma, trauma center and trauma system development uh, in a way that leads to the same effect in Region 14 as the rest of the world. Claude Oregon says it's, it's attitude, not aptitude, that determines altitude. This is an important, an important thing for leadership development, but really a change of attitude often requires a change in the way we view the world. So I'm gonna, of course, show pictures of blue bonnets. I'm a photographer and I love, I love blue bonnets, as you know, but they're really weeds. They're weeds of the pea family. They're particularly beautiful weed, I think. But, uh, but if you were looking, perspective really matters. I don't know what this looks like. It probably looks, to me on this picture, it looks like a vacant corporate lot, okay? But there's a few blue bonnets down here. Let's get down at the blue bonnet at the same level and take a picture. And you can see, changing our perspective, we can actually see there is a flower there and you can smell it. And if you lay there long enough, people may call EMS on you and police and they may come to get you. Trust me, I know that, okay? It has happened. Uh, it does happen. Then if you shine a soft, gentle light on it, the flower, oh my gosh, you can see the true beauty of the flower. Then if you wait for just a minute and sunset happens, you get it in context with everything around it. So really, these things make a difference in how we view the world. Our vision is determined by our perspective, what sort of light we shine on the subject and context. That determines our perception. So close your eyes for just a minute. I'm gonna just read this quote to you. The vision of a child changes the world. This is Ambrose Perret 500 years ago. In his own account, whenever he was 12 years old, when this appetite was awakened within me, seeing after a difficult and skillful operation, which I was a witness, how useful and helpful was the science of surgery it appeared to me to be beautiful and best of all things to work for the relief and cure of suffering. To work for the relief and cure of suffering, the most beautiful of all things. 
From that moment, I promised myself that this would be the task of my life. The desire and pleasure to be useful was my principal aim, and I moved in that direction forevermore. The vision of a child changes himself, changes France, and changes the world. Amazing. Our people are our most important resource, our most important resource. Kudos to Dr. Bulger for establishing the, the mentoring and development program in the METS. Uh, it's amazing, Dr. Bulger. Uh, the, the, the mentees really benefit, but actually the COT benefits more from the infusion of young people. Uh, so think about giving a contribution to the foundation. These are some of the pictures here of, of current uh, uh, future trauma leaders and METS people. I'm going to talk about conscious leadership briefly. Our conscious decisions have an impact on our team members. I've learned it's far more likely that I will do unconscious harm than unconscious good. This is Peggy Tabor Millen's view of what that means. If one of these drops touches another drop, the drop is never the same. It's never the same. We surgeons know this because we do things on, we do things, operations on patients that have an immediate and permanent impact on them. And we're emotionally invested in the care. But the COT recognizes that just as with an operation, our leadership has a permanent impact on the people around us. So let's commit to making conscious decisions about being good. Advocacy. Advocacy. It's our duty to articulate a hopeful view of the future. It is our duty to advocate a hopeful view of the future. I ended... This is a bit of a bookend talk to my first address to the Committee on Trauma. I ended with this quote from Frederick Douglass to Daniel Hale Williams, circa 1890. I ended with that quote. It's very sage advice. Okay, you may hope all you want, but you must do. Action matters. You say no, we say go. I really like this, this approach from Jerry Groupman, though, is that he basically makes it clear that's different. Hope is the ability in your own mind's eye to see a path to a better future. And true hope has no room for delusion. It acknowledges the obstacles along the way. Hope, a hopeful view of the future. That's what I mean. What are the characteristics of effective advocates? They're committed. They're willing to challenge the status quo. They're willing to suffer and sacrifice the ability to tell a meaningful story and a bias for action. These seven Ps are critical to advocacy. L.D. Britt in his address that Dr. Martin Luther King said, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. But what he did not say, because, because he, he took it for granted that that's, he knew that's what you had to do, it doesn't bend by itself. You have to take it, grab it, and pull it, and it takes commitment, effort, and sacrifice. Alex Walt, in 1978, said these amazingly wise words. Be zealous without being zealots. Stand strongly for what we think to be right without being self-righteous. Face moral problems without being moralistic. And promote sanity without sanctimony. We need to advocate for our patient, a national trauma system, research, fire injury prevention, ACS quality programs, and team. Every patient needs an advocate. Every patient needs an advocate. Every single patient needs an advocate, and that should be us. But let's learn from moms. 
Moms are some of the most amazing advocates if you think about it. This is a patient of mine who I've followed, we've followed each other for 26 or 27 years. He had ICP of 60 for a week. He had a temperature of 106. He was a multiple trauma patient, really, really sick. And he and I have been in contact for the past two and a half decades. These are words from his mom. I had to fight for my son. I can't tell you the times I've heard he can't, he won't, he'll never. He was, she was told by a healthcare professional, if you take him home, your husband will leave you. And she has sage advice for us. She said, I've only went against the, the advice of a doctor a few times, but when I did, I said, you be the doctor, I'll be the mom. Advocacy, true advocacy. This is artwork from Dale. He, he sends me art all the time. We healthcare professionals need positive patient experiences. Just like children need positive childhood experiences, healthcare professionals need positive patient experiences. So advocacy for the patient is not just good for the patient, it's good for us. Let's celebrate small and large victories and rejoice in great outcomes like Dale. I'm going to talk on intentional injury, the intentional injury pandemic. This vitally needs our advocacy. It demands our advocacy. I think it is the most important problem that the Committee on Trauma faces, addressing the intentional injury pandemic. This is from Dr. Bolger, a moment of crisis with a lifetime of impact. A moment of crisis that has a lifetime of impact. Our job is to not make it a moment of impact with a lifetime of crises, but it's an acute event that has long-term impact. This is from my phone. My phone, May 24th. A nine-year-old. That's her chest X-ray. You know what that means. That's her CAT scan. She witnesses, she witnessed and can recount every event in that classroom. This is her. A few weeks ago, we must put the same effort to get this little girl under the leadership of Dr. Lillian Liao and our entire trauma team takes hundreds of people putting everything that they have for this patient. We must do the same with respect to prevention. We can, and I think we will. There's many steps we can do to make a, a positive difference. Dr. Cools, Dr. Campbell, Dr. Barsati in this thing, you, you, you took a radioactive, a radio, you, we said it was radioactive, the topic was radioactive, and you've made it attractive. It's an amazing transformation. These principles really matter. In part, this was done by, we have a really big why, it really matters to us. Why, 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 this is from Kathy Barber. But how really does matter. Why, 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 why? Well, how about how? Well, how, the how is, um, it's not simple, but this is the how. Engage communities at risk is the solution, not the problem. Partner with and support those communities uh, and empower those partnerships with data and tools. Yeah. The common American narrative goes something like this. Firearm ownership is the constitutionally protected right? Yes. 
But violence is a major cause of preventable death and suffering. I think the most important health problem we face. We can address that by working together to work to understand and address the root causes of violence while making farm ownership safer. And we should not expect a problem that is inherently about violence to be solved by a violent debate. This is a pop-up from the Sutherland Springs mass shooting. So we've worked to engage farm owners as part of the solution. This is the amazing farm strategy team. And if you want to know what to do, look at what the farm strategy team about policy. I, I believe every single thing is actionable in that report. I commend it to you. But we must get to the root, not the branches. We must get to the root, not the branches. So, and I think if we went anywhere in the world where poverty, inequity, and poor health outcomes existed, we would see a sense of hopelessness and structural violence, structural violence. So a special shout out to the iSAVE work group who are really working on root causes, root causes. They have four recommendations for us. Implement trauma-informed care in every, every hospital, every community. Invest in communities. Get a roadmap. Social care into acute care. That means hospital and community-based violence intervention. And advocate, adv advocacy for equity in social addressing social determinants. This is Benny Price. Uh, I work with, uh, with uh, Mr. Price. He's the CEO of a community-based, faith-based violence intervention program. And I asked Benny, I asked Benny, what, what is it to, how do you make the transition from violence to peace? And he very thoughtfully said, you know, I've thought about that a lot and I've prayed a, about it a lot, Dr. Stewart. He said, if you all know the, what I believe, the environment, he said, we have to change the environment. He said, I can take you to a place where you can be the most peaceful person and you will be violent. He didn't finish it or you will be dead. You will be violent. And if we change the environment, peace happens naturally. To do that, we have to advocate for funding to match the burden of disease and the common inclusive narrative works it works. I've testified in front of Congress. I can tell you when Representative DeLauro uh, from uh, two different areas of the country and Representative Cole look at each other and they go, I think we can maybe work on this. This seems reasonable. And the moms demand people come give you a hug and the NRA basically writes you and says, that was good. The common narrative works. And we were successful in getting funding, 25 million. We just need to increase that by two orders of magnitude, maybe three. But, uh, but it does work. This is uh, Dr. Juan Herrera Escobar. Uh, this is a great, great opinion piece in the New England Journal recently. Uh, working on that principle, Dr. Bolger's a, a, a moment of crisis with a lifetime of impact. Framing traumatic injury as a chronic condition is a great path forward. We need to all support Center, the Coalition for National Trauma Research. They've made a real difference, more than $100 million in funding uh, over the, the lifetime, but they're doing awesome work and we should support them. So there are leadership and advocacy opportunities, partnering with our patients and our communities to address social determinants of health and equity, partnering with farm owners to make a difference, working to achieve funding to match the burden disease, 
And it's, it's counterintuitive, I know, and the PAC people didn't put this to me, by the way. It's counterintuitive, I know, but if you care about quality, give to the ACS PAC. If you care about economic issues, give to the PAC. If you care about equity and social determinants, give to the PAC in a counterintuitive way because they give to both sides, and we must have bipartisan action. We can all do these things. Lead with a positive, hopeful, accurate worldview. Promote positive childhood experiences with a special focus on those children at greatest risk. Implement trauma-informed care in your world. Engage communities, friends, and neighbors by teaching Stop the Bleed. It's a great discussion starter. Use a friends helping friends approach. The common narrative works, use it. And advocate for the policies outlined in the Farm Strategy Team and the ISA work groups. Wrapping up, trauma is the most important pandemic of our children. There's been dramatic improvements over the past 100 years, but we have opportunities for improvement. Our advocacy is absolutely critical. We've been too complacent. We must address intentional injury with the same effort, the same strategies that we use for unintentional injury. And cooperation and communication do save lives. Trauma really is a moment of crisis with a lifetime of impact. An inclusive, consensus decision-making process centered on the right thing to do for the patient makes a real difference. We must lead, we must lead with respect to this. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.